We made it. People only thought about running away. <clears throat> this is a, prayer, uh, a poem by Jane Hirschfield called Late Prayer. Late Prayer. Tenderness does not choose its own uses. Tenderness does not choose its own uses. I kind of just want to stop there. Tenderness does not choose its own uses. It goes out to everything equally, circling rabbit and hawk. Look, in the iron bucket, a single nail, a single ruby, all the heavens and hells, they rattle in the heart and make one sound. So here is a hypothesis that's central to this life is love and letting go. And you could substitute wisdom and letting go or whatever, basically the same thing. Central to this life is love and letting go, or we have a very big immovable problem. What if it is the problem? The problem, capital T, capital P, is whether love and letting go is central to our life. What would be the power of that as like an overarching reframe of your life? One problem that we keep encountering the absence of love or the absence of letting go, one solution, love, let go. And our own hearts won't let us forget their imperatives. We're on the hook. We've been hooked. We've been spotted by our own hearts. We've been seen through by our own hearts. The illusion is exposed from the heart's perspective. We each have an unflinching gaze, an unmoving presence inside us that won't be conned our own heart. And you can't shake it. No amount of Netflix binge thaws it completely. Try as we might. No amount of praise, affection, or status actually muffles its question or really dulls the ache. There are a lot of um, often abrasive spiritual teachings about the nature of the world and about how it doesn't hit the spot. And they have a compassionate purpose because many things of this life titillate, occupy, and amuse the mind. Many things arouse, arouse and soothe the body temporarily. 
and yet so many things and activities don't permeate through to the heart. Keep hoping it will. I have this thing where I keep going to art galleries. I keep hoping I have a hunger to be touched by a piece of art because I have been. And I keep going and it doesn't happen very often. Living with a stimulated mind, a comfortable body, and a lonely, under-inhabited heart can become a whole way of being. Call it the United States of America, if you wish. Questioning doesn't go away in your practice even as you uh, evolve and continue. You might think people who've been in this for decades don't have certain kinds of doubts or don't ever um, look at things skeptically, but it's not true. You just tend to look at it from a different place. So you might wonder, as I sometimes do, what is the point of spiritual practice? Shouldn't I or we be protesting, canvassing, stapling ourselves to artworks? Somebody brought forth in Sanzen, how does following my breath help the world? And I was really touched by the integrity of that question. We have to find out. How does following my breath help the world? Actually, they said it in a way they love. They said, how does my attention being at my nostrils do anything for the world? But the question has to take into account, do we really know what my is? Do we really know what breath is? Are we really sure what world is? But the question may persist, what's the point? In a way, that question keeps arising so that any nest we make about what the point is, and any nest becomes stale if you stay in it too long. Any nest we make, we have to get pushed out of it. And so our own heart even offers that question, what is the point? What is the point? We could say this activity is actually trying to answer that question. We want to know what the point is. We have some sense there is one. What is the point? Not too hard to observe that practice done with a sound understanding feeds the heart. One of the privileges of um, being in the teacher's seat is you get to watch people eat how they chew and how much falls out of their mouth and so forth during orioki. No, but you get you part of your job is to watch people. And one of the things you see is you some see some people who came into session like this, and then by day four their face has softened. You can see some light around their head. 
You can hear their breath change. You can observe that practice has fed the heart and there's a change. Practice done with sound understanding feeds the heart. And even when it's a rough patch, a lonely, devastating patch, still the practice feeds the heart because that's what's asked for. In the New York Times, they're talking about people have taken ideas from therapy and now everybody is talking about well, I'm not going to call my friend back who's sick because I want to make sure my needs are met today. And feelings are being enshrined as some kind of ultimate truth. That's not what's being meant by the heart. The heart is not some solo affair. Heart is in relationship whether we like it or not. Tenderness does not choose its own uses. The heart is entangled with others. We can show up for that or not. Practice feeds the heart. I'm going to read another poem by Jane Hirschfield. I was reflecting that when I've gone through really rough times, there are certain things I've leaned on and then those things I become deeply grateful for. Like Pop-Tarts are one of those things for me. Um, but the Pop-Tarts didn't really touch my heart. I mean, kind of. They kind of do. Like unfrosted Pop-Tarts, if you actually toast them. But Jane, Jane Hirschfield's poetry was something that, um, in a sense, was there for me. And Jane Hirschfield's story is really interesting because she was a woman in her early 20s. She was already winning awards for her poetry. And she felt that her intimacy with the universe wasn't quite there. Somehow she had the, the humility or the luck to, to know that. So she um, gave up writing for a while and went for six or seven years into a Zen monastery. Came out and is one of uh, America's, at least, best poets. Just opinions. This is called Lake and Maple. Lake and Maple. I want to give myself utterly as this maple that burned and burned for three days without stinting and then in two more dropped off every leaf. I want to give myself utterly as this maple. No matter what comes, as this lake, as this lake that no matter what comes to its green-blue depths, both takes and returns it. In the still heart that refuses nothing, the world is twice born, two earths wheeling, two heavens, two egrets reaching down into subtraction, even the fish for an instant doubled before it is gone. I want the fish. I want the losing it all when it rains, and I want the returning transparency. I want the place by the edge flowers where the shallow sand is deceptive, where whatever steps in must plunge 
and I want that plunging. I want the ones who come in secret to drink only in early darkness. And I want the ones who are swallowed. I want the way this water sees without eyes and hears without ears. This is very good um, Zazen instruction. I want the way this water sees without eyes and hears without ears, shivers without will or fear at the gentlest touch. I want the way it accepts the cold moonlight and lets it pass, the, the way it lets all of it pass without judgment or comment. There is a lake, Lala Dead sang, no larger than one seed of mustard that all things return to. O heart, if you will not, cannot give me the lake, then give me the song. Zen is a mystic path, meaning Zen is a path leading into new intimacies beyond what rational mind can conceive and what concept mind can grasp. And some minds are titillated by that and some are frustrated. To do this, in other words, why would I use the word mystic? We walk into mysterious territory. It is shrouded in mist. We lose the forest for the tree. This is not a tradition where you can open a book and find a kind of schematic from A to Z, like do this, and then this will happen, and then this will happen, and then this will happen. And if you're good at doing this, then this will happen. Certainty in how our practice is going, where we and others are on the map, Certainty in who's doing it right and who's doing it wrong. What we will be like as we follow the map. Our spiritual ancestors called this folly. Just straight up, this is foolish. This is incorrect. This is not something that can be grasped by your thinking mind. And it's related is, is certainty about what gratitude is and looks like and what generosity is and looks like. Did someone just put a shit sandwich on my plate or a box of wisdom? It entirely depends on my view. It entirely depends on my view. Koto talked about uh, Atisha who offered the slogan, be grateful to everyone. And there's a story about Atisha. Uh, Atisha, and I'm going to paraphrase, uh, went on a long travel. Maybe it was the travel from India to Tibet. And Atisha, there was this irritating tea attendant who liked to hang around him that he didn't like very much. So Atisha invited this young man to accompany him the whole way so he could walk his talk as he walked. So with the right view, it's like, oh, 
I'm meeting an edge of my empathy. Okay, good. Because going over that edge is what my heart is requesting. Oh, I'm falling into whatever again. Good. Because growing beyond that particular snare is what my heart's requesting. Whether it's a shit sandwich or a box of wisdom, it's all dependent on our view. But in our sitting, we're engaging this unknowing and this unlearning and this wiping clear the mirror of mind and wiping even that away. And we're returning to innocence. There's a feeling of um, being stripped naked. One of the koans says, and this is the name of a monk who lives in a particular place, says, Great Nara of Daishi broke their bones and tore off their flesh to give a teaching to their parents. It's a koan about gratitude. To break your bones and tear off your flesh to offer a Dharma teaching to your parents. So we become stripped naked as we engage this process, and we can't explain this, especially to people who aren't doing it, and we can't justify it. Reason always needs reasons. So resistance from thinking mind ego is a given because we're edging into territory that frightens it. The value of saying something like this is to view the arising of this in a different light because it's what happens for us at one time or another. Ordinary thought is a tool of categorizing, ordering, sizing up, and making clear. That cannot touch the great mystery. We can try to describe it afterwards. In other words, thinking mind does not understand and cannot understand what is on the other side of its anxious activity. But the heart's longing can edge us beyond. I think of this sometimes as like um, a warm bath. Or when I was a kid, I was afraid of baths. Probably got put in one that was a little too hot. And so I became timid about them. But it's like standing outside a bath and you might think, is it safe to take my clothes off? Is it too hot? Or as we become, become adults, baths become luxuries. Isn't there something more practical to do? Aren't there some emails I could write? could just shower, it's faster. Am I worthy of letting go and being buoyed up in a body of warmth? Think about that. Think about whether you feel you're, wor- you're worthy of letting go of suffering. You are worthy. I am worthy. 
It's not even a matter of being worthy. A, a related feeling perception is that can be very subliminal is, do I deserve it? Literally, we can be sitting here fairly consistently in great bliss. Maybe you feel you don't deserve that. That's just a belief. I want to touch a bit on some practices of uh, gratitude and generosity. Um, But first I want to touch on uh, parents as teachers. Again, Kodo so beautifully talked about this, and it just sparked some thoughts for me about um, parents, and really this could apply to anybody, is that if we are awake, we're constantly being taught how to be and how not to be. So you might have parents that taught you how to be, or you might have parents that taught you how not to be. Which one is more valuable? It's hard to say. Our parents might have taught us what makes a happy life, and, or they might have manifested so impactfully the formula of what doesn't that we didn't take their path. Thank God. Reflecting on parents can arise in us the wisdom that everything is mixed. We believe in purity. It's weird. Everything is mixed. A good childhood wasn't entirely good. Think about how hard it is to spend a day with somebody who had a good childhood. That's very difficult. It's very difficult. Yeah? It doesn't have entirely good effects. And a bad childhood wasn't entirely bad and doesn't have entirely bad effects. Think about people who have, who have arisen out of adverse experiences that their parents were vectors for. Wouldn't be who they were without that. Of course, if the decisions that we have made about our parents can block our view of seeing this for us, that's part of what that koan is about. If you tear off your flesh and break your bones, that is, if you can dissolve like a sugar cube in a warm glass of water enough over and over the conceptual mind, then everything can be seen fresh. Then things have a a new chance. They can be seen differently. I'm grateful to my mom for the practice of um, counting blessings. Her way of responding to me saying, I don't have what I want was, well, pay attention to what other people don't have. And that was impactful. I think that really helped me. And so there's some skillfulness, and I'm recommending this for the right people. I don't know who you are. There's some skillfulness in a practice of reflecting on how bad we don't have it. It's kind of like standard Buddhist training, actually, especially in like Tibetan tradition. You meditate on the six realms of existence. You really try to feel the truth that some people are in hell right now, and you're not. Some people are living as animals 
right now, meaning they, they can only, all they can do is work for survival. There is no energy left for anything else. Some people are in a realm of addiction right now. The mind cannot get out of a closed loop of fixation on an object that will be the answer, etc. Sometimes that kind of stuff comes off kind of heavy-handed. But for me, it works. I just reflect. Oh my God. I'm not a Russian soldier being drafted into the army to go die in the Ukraine. Wow. What should I do? As a side note to this, it's always good to remember, or I think so, that we can only ever imagine someone else's state of mind. We can only ever imagine seeing through their eyes. Nobody has experienced any mind except their own. There's one life and one mind you'll ever experience, and it's yours. And so there's a kind of arrogance when we look we imagine someone else's life and we go, oh, how, how terrible it must be to be you. Thinking that they might desire our life. Who said that they don't want their life? So the practice of uh, counting blessings. See if, it, see if it works for you. Almost all Dharma practices are like that. They're called skillful means which means if it works, it's the good practice. If it actually increases your suffering, then it's not a good practice, generally. So another practice, which I think is a practice of gratitude and generosity as one, is contemplating that all our strengths, good qualities and skills uh, are transmitted by others. This is an antidote to pride. Pride is the basic belief that good things source from me. Pride is, has this great, uh, it's this great amnesia of interdependence. So pride is something that we melt with practice. For example, we, let's say we make a living by building cabinets. And if there are any cabinet makers here, I'm not picking on you. We make a living by building cabinets, and people tell us we do it well, and we're paid well, and we might subtly think that we're the source of this ability. We might think, I'm talented, or I worked harder than those others, therefore... And the, the kind of belief comes in that we're special, gifted, kind of different than those other people. But, for example, where did we learn or were we imprinted with the ability to what we do, what we call hard work? Maybe we heard someone being judged as lazy, and we knew that lazy was bad, and so it arose in us a determination to not be lazy. So our beneficial quality of hard work, in part, arises from not wanting to be judged as lazy. That's not some inherent virtue in me. I just don't want to be judged as lazy. So I work hard. 
Actually, the lazy person gave us a gift. The person we decided to avoid being like has now given us this gift. They might be responsible for our whole career. Think on that. Laziness can cause hard work. Stinginess can cause generosity. Foolishness can cause wisdom. Think on that. How can we be so quick to divide the good from the bad? Maybe the hardworking quality was modeled by a parent struggling to elevate their status in society for them, for the family. Maybe through genetic luck, we have a strong constitution. Sometimes people who just are, have the genetic luck of being healthy tend to get prideful because they're strong and they can do a bunch of things and they think that somehow it means that they're, they're better than other people. They just kind of happen to have, the genes just fell in the right way and they're strong. Where did the ability to work hard come from? Not from me. Me is not made of me. This is first side of, of wisdom and dharma. Me is not made of me. I didn't do this. The other side is I'm the source of myself. And they're interdependent. Where did even the ability to work with tools and make sophisticated things come from? We're not inborn with that knowledge. Haven't they done some experiments where they raised children like in captivity and they were kind of like wolves? Or did I make that up? <laughs> people, people don't know how to, people have to be cultured. Where did the tools come from? Let's say I have a career that I take pride in that is dependent on some tool that someone stumbled upon. Think of a medical science, for example. People can get very prideful about work in medicine, but it's only recently that we stopped bloodletting. We did that for a long time. Remember bloodletting? <laughs> Remember like going to the doctor and somebody deciding to like cut you open and leak some blood out so the disease might drip away? This was like 150 years ago, 300 years ago. Personally, I'm grateful I was never taught how to do anything practical in my upbringing. And I am not being humble right now, this is true. Besides use the microwave. And I remember coming here and chosen just being astonished that I had never boiled water before. And I thought, would you just put it in the microwave? That's <laughs> There's no basis for pride. That's why, we, that's why when we can see it in others, we find it very ugly. Of course, it's so much easier to see it in others and we can't see it in ourselves, but we all, it's kind of universal that we find it offensive because it offends some deep sensibility. We know it has no basis. I was thinking um, at some point when I was the cook, I started taking pride. The hard thing about not getting proud is sometimes good things are appearing, people think you're the cause of them and they start complimenting you. 
This is why often in the Zen training, you only get told what you do wrong, not what you do right. It's a tough love that you have to have a deep vision to understand because being complimented often just swells one's head, at least for 20-something-year-old guys. But anyways, so I was the cook, and I, people started telling me I was making good meals. And then one day I was just in the kitchen having fun and realized this is all just the self-existing goodness of the universe. I was just arranging different configurations of miraculousness, and it almost always worked. Squash, salt, olive oil, nutritional yeast. That's the inconceivable beauty and goodness of the universe. I'm just kind of putting a little bit here and a little bit there. What are artists doing? They're just moving around the inconceivable goodness of color and sound and words. If we were a theistic tradition, we would just praise God. That somehow everything beautiful comes beyond us and through us. Last night at dinner, I marveled that someone thought to combine bread, cheese, and tomato sauce. I almost wept. (laughs) Seriously, I'm getting a little moist just thinking about it right now. Another Zen practice of gratitude has to do with experiencing something so completely it's not in reference to anything else. Right? So I, I think I talked earlier about how we, we become spoiled or afflicted by especially positive experience, but of course it happens with negative experience too because we internalize these reference points for what is good, what is okay, what is love, you name it. We, the mind is imprinted by reference points. And then we're like, yeah, that's a beautiful moon. But I remember in 2020, it was so much more beautiful. When you're at the restaurant, or you're making love, or you're listening to a record, or you're meditating, or whatever it is, and the mind goes, oh yeah, but I remember a better time. Ordinary mind experiences everything in reference to something else. That's what we mean by say it's good, it's bad, it's better, it's worse. And it's referencing its own phantom. The memory is so phantom. The memory is so paltry. Ghosts of memory that, that haunt us. So what we mean in presence by presence in Zen is direct experience without reference points like that. So we have to be vividly and robustly here. And then there's no comparing mind. There is no comparing mind. There's no reference point. And not only are we relieved of um, the pain of the inner critic, but things really shine in their true colors. The moon is really there because you are. You are really there because the moon is. Your husband, your daughter, fill in the blank, is really there because you are. 
And it's poignant because all of this is nothing but love's temporary occurrence. The Japanese have this custom that when a friend leaves your house you, or you drop them off, you wait until the very last moment that they disappear, you, you're in connection with them saying goodbye. Because the perception that this could be the last meeting is, has penetrated the culture. That, that depth of impermanence. You are really there because your loved one is there. Talking about on the spot, in the moment. Everything else is an abstraction. So in a few hours, this context of session dissolves and we're each in a different context. Human life has no guardrails. Have you ever had a kind of near miss where you realize that you almost had your life irrevocably changed? Human life has no guardrails, and strange to me, I find this very strange, we don't instinctively make the choices that are most healthy. We can talk all we want about like natural wisdom, but we don't instinctively make the choices that are most healthy. We don't instinctually go in the direction or do the things that will actually connect us with the true, the good, and the beautiful. It would be nice if that was our nature. If this concerns you, there is the principle of the three refuges, the three jewels, the Sangha, the Buddha, the Dharma. And in um, all the different Mahayana traditions and Tibetan, you find teachings like, well, there's the outer three jewels, which is the actual institution, right? There's the inner three jewels and the secret three jewels, meaning there is a deeper way to understand what these are about. This is a unmoving principle of life, Sangha, Dharma, Buddha. This is not just about the Buddhist religion. And you may already be doing these things, you may not. For example, a Sangha, you could conceive of these as maybe not separate from the crowd you already run in, but maybe it is separate from the crowd you already run in. And something you encounter in this practice is, oh, I actually hang out with people who are toxic, but I love them. What am I going to do? Hell if I know. That's a tough question. So we explore, we test, and we take membership. Membership is actually a deep word. You become part of the body. The body that's sailing. We explore, we test, and we take membership with groups of people where sobriety, humility, and care for others are the guiding vision. If sobriety, humility, and care for others are the guiding vision, that's Sangha. And on this practical level, if our own guiding principles are not firmly rooted, it's so helpful to spend time with people you want to be like. Like going to art school. 
for example. Really hard to flourish as an artist in your own basement outside the context of other creators. Really hard to flourish spiritually in your own bedroom apart from the context of other practitioners. There's this belief now with the internet that one can be like a bedroom Buddha and not actually have to have a practice that's relational, which is a total fantasy. And of course, it's mostly men doing that. (laughs) So if our guiding principles are not firmly rooted, it's helpful to be with people whose guiding principles are parallel to our own. We're contextually arisen. This is a nice thing you could pay attention to as you leave um, session. So you feel like your basic stance of being and who you are in this context. And then you go home and you interact in different uh, contexts, not bad, not good, and see who comes forward. You just watch that. It can't be helped. But, so we are contextually arisen, and this is Sangha. We explore, we test, and we establish a relationship with living people who we feel are at least a little consistent in their sobriety, humility, and caring, and we ask them for their assistance. And so this is Buddha, this is sobriety. We explore, we test, we commit ourselves to the practices that support sobriety, humility, and caring. And we do that in the context of Sangha and Buddha. It's just striking me that, that Buddha is similar to the principle of elder that has been so esteemed and unbudging in traditional cultures. Elders are necessary because their years of experience in whatever domain give them sobriety. Meaning they're, necess- they're not dispensable to any of us. So without Sangha and Buddha, we can fall into the trap of the lone wolf or the heroine or some spiritualized hedonic pit. Yeah. (laughs) Just just take a moment for the spiritualized hedonic pit. And so this is is Dharma. Let's say um, Dharma is humility, which means any practice that melts ego's ice cube. That's the practice of dharma. It took me a long time to um, realize this, to be able to share it with you, but we can't get any of this perfect. We can't get any of this perfect. I don't believe anyone ever has. And we have to do our best. And as each moment's conditions, as the, what am I doing with my hands here? I don't know. As the field gives rise to a person based on the moment's conditions, we do our best. We do our best with the ingredients that we have in that moment. And all of this is lit by the magic of awareness. 
This would just be a bunch of self-help stuff if it wasn't for that magic light. That light is magic. By that magic light, just by, just by being who we are, we help each other's hearts and minds open. Whether we're an irritating T-boy or I don't, I don't know who's on the other side. Why did Richard Gere just come to mind? <laughs> or Richard Gere. <laughs> Generosity and gratitude. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.